So the subject we're going to be dealing with today is uh, sexual immorality. It's a sensitive subject for many, so I just want to be conscious of that. Um, so, I, you know, I don't see any kids, so I don't see that being an issue. But uh, I know this is one of those subjects that can be quite uh, hit close to home for many people. Um, my hope here is really just to sort of talk about, from a theological perspective, why sexual immorality is such an issue, and um, if that strikes a chord with you, uh, if you are troubled by anything like this, uh, I'll be around afterwards, and I'll be happy to, to talk further. Uh, also, I encourage you, of course, if this is something that is that you really do struggle with, that you might want to have a conversation with a pastor, uh, preferably your own. Um, sometimes that's not always easy, though, so I recognize that, but I just want you to know that I understand that this is a very sensitive subject. It's a subject that is very challenging. And I think, too, some of the things that we're going to talk about today are quite intimate in a, in a sense. So um, just, I guess, be prepared. Uh, I don't know what else to say. But uh, if there's one thing that our society is opposed to, our culture at large, it is uh, restrictive sexual ethics, right? And if there's one thing that Christianity is known for, it's restrictive Christian ethics, uh, sexual ethics. So our society really defines freedom in large part uh, as a freedom from sexual constraint or freedom to love who you want when you want. <clears throat> By contrast, over the centuries, the Christians have had some really quite bizarre views of sex, although strictly, if you look at where those views have come from. They've not normally been a result of reading the Bible, but more because of what's called syncretism, the mixing of Christian beliefs with non-Christian ideas, and particularly perhaps uh, throughout the early church anyway, Neoplatonism, which we won't talk about today. Um, but anyway, today, even though that's the case in history, today the church is not much different. So in the history, the, the whole thing behind Neoplatonism was that that was a cultural phenomenon of the early church. The early church was born into a Neoplatonic uh, worldview. And today, while we don't have a Neoplatonic worldview, the church today is not much different. Most Christians today, and, and perhaps I'm saying too much when I use the word most, but I'm going to be bold. Most Christians today take their cues about sexuality from society. Uh, some Christians work hard to maintain purity, but, but many don't. And Christians often can be found sleeping together before marriage. Uh, some Christians even live together uh, without being married. And, and too many churches don't actually take the required steps to help members understand that this is contrary to God's design and intention. Perhaps one of the reasons why churches fail in this sense is that it's not actually clear to many Christians why sexual immorality is such a big issue amongst uh, within Christianity. So, so the question I want to ask and answer today is, why is the Christian sexual ethic so strict? What biblical defense can we possibly mount for it? And so take your uh, phone or iPad and navigate your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And from 1 Corinthians, I really want to give you four reasons why sexual immorality outside of marriage is reprehensible for Christians. And the word reprehensible here just simply means something deserving of condemnation. So my hope today is to encourage you toward purity, toward the guarding of your minds and hearts, the enrichment of your marriages, 
and a greater appreciation of the person and work of Christ. So four reasons why sexual immorality is reprehensible for Christians. Let me give you the points up front and then it will go through these uh, from the text. The first reason is that uh, sexual immorality is reprehensible for Christians because it violates our freedom. Secondly, it violates our union. Thirdly, it violates our own body. And fourthly, it violates God's temple. Now, as we go through these, the implication for each gets more significant. In fact, what we see in this text here is that Paul develops from one thing to the next, to the next. And so by the time we get to the very last one, he's really providing a foundational idea that sits in behind the first idea he starts with. So as we go through, these get more and more significant, if you like. Now, like I said, the material I'm sharing with you today, this is actually a small part of my doctoral dissertation, uh, which is on union with Christ and marriage. Uh, there's going to be some things like union with Christ and its relevance for marriage that we might encounter as we go through. I'm going to try and unpack these for you. Uh, but in case I don't, and you have questions about these, uh, I'll be around at the end and we can talk about those uh, then. There is quite a lot of... Yeah, anyway. Also, I'm going to be using a variety of translations as we go through today. Um, I'm not doing this because I'm picking and choosing translations to suit my argument. I actually teach biblical Greek. And so what I'm trying to do is to communicate through, uh, communicate with you really what the original language is actually saying. Sometimes translations leave things uh, less clear than, than a, a different way of presenting it can explain them. And some translations capture things better than, than others do as well. So I'm trying to just communicate with you what the original language is actually saying. So I want to show you from 1 Corinthians that Paul gives us, like I said, four reasons why sexual immorality is reprehensible for Christians. Now, note too, that I'm not making an argument here for unbelievers, okay? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, that this is something that applies to everybody generally. The character of God and the intention of God in creation for mankind and for a man and a woman to be married in marriage, this is applicable to all people everywhere throughout time, believers and unbelievers. But sexual immorality is even more significant for believers. Not only is it contrary to God's creational intention, which is derived from his own character, but it is contrary to the very salvation that we have in Christ. And that's really what I want to focus on today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Actually, we're going to start from chapter 5. Uh, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to address a number of significant issues uh, that he, he knew about that had risen in the church in the city of Corinth in around about uh, the year 55 AD. One of the significant issues that Paul addressed is sexual conduct. And we read in chapter 5 uh, there in verse 1, it actually is reported that there is immorality among you. And immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and you have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has committed this sin as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and when I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, 
so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is where this discussion of sexual immorality in the book of 1 Corinthians begins. And the case that he's referring to here is probably not the only case of sexual immorality within the Christian church, but it's the one that Paul decides to take issue with as by far it is one that is very prominent, a very you know, clear and obvious situation of immorality that he's heard of in this church. He then goes on, following on from this, to explain that they have responsibility, starting from verse 6, to clean out the old ways, the old leaven, uh, the sinful ways. Then he tells them not to associate even with so-called Christians who are immoral in verses 9 through 11. In chapter 5, verses 12, through to chapter 6, verse 8, he explains that they should be able to judge those in the church in these matters, arguing that as Christians, they are going to judge the world how much more small matters within the church. And he then goes on to explain the fact that they are not even judging things between themselves, but going to unbelievers, right? They're going to law courts, and he says this is a, a, an indication of their own defeat and failure, and it's better to be defrauded than it is to take other believers to church. Then in chapter 6, verse 9 to 11, he's saying that, they should know that immorality is actually a sign that someone is not saved because you have been cleaned through conversion and regeneration. And he quotes there in verse 11, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. So we're starting our time today in verses 12 through 14, which explains the implications then of this cleansing that has already taken place in Christ, which we saw in verse 11. And this is where we find the first reason that sexual immorality is reprehensible for Christians. In fact, let me just ask somebody, Stephen, could you read for me uh, chapter 6, verses 12 through 14? Thank you. Yeah, the assumption behind this is that we were once subject to the law and enslaved to behave contrary to it, right? Regardless of whether we were Jew or Gentile, that was the situation. But Christ came, and according to Galatians chapter 4, Galatians 4 verse 5 explains that Christ came that he might redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. So now in Christ, we are not subject to the law, but led by the Spirit. Thank you. Yeah. So verse 18 of chapter 5 of Galatians, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So if we're in Christ, we're not just positionally in Christ, but we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 9, which brings new set of desires to us. And we can find this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 and following. And these new desires and the mind of Christ that comes with it is how we are free from sin. And this is what underlies here Paul's argument, right? Going back there, all things are lawful to me. All things are lawful to me, right? There's a freedom that we have in Christ. Before we were under the law, 
you know, we had sin and we were enslaved, but now in Christ we have new desires. We've been transformed by the renewing of our mind or being transformed and have redemption, eternal redemption in Christ. And this includes the forgiveness of all our sins, past, present, and future. And having been set free from slavery to sin, we're no longer under law but under grace. And therefore, we are called and given the desire to love one another, forgive one another, and live in such a way that the love of God is manifested in us. This essentially means that love then is the fulfillment of the law, right? That's the fullness of the law. In fact, is uh, what that verse says in uh, Romans 13, 16. When we love in the practical and the biblical manner that's prescribed, we inherently fulfill the law because love is the fullness of the law. So this means for Christians that we're not burdened by the law, but we are burdened to love. Law provides a guide for what love looks like. So Paul says then, all things are lawful to me. But the argument Paul is making here is that while all things are lawful, this does not mean we should do whatever we want to do, right? We've been set free by Christ, but our freedom needs to be used for the right reasons. And this is not what was going on in Corinth. In Corinth, they had succumbed to the idea that all things were lawful, then we should just follow the function of the body. And that's why he goes on there to say, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. This is like a saying that was making its way through the church of Corinth and maybe around the ancient world, which some argue in this case that based, you know, that there's some form of teleology, if you like. There's a purpose for the stomach, right? And therefore, we should just use it to fulfill that purpose. Now, they're arguing essentially that the obvious purpose of the stomach or the obvious purpose of the body should guide their behavior. That's what they're arguing here. In other words, if the stomach is made for food, we should just eat because that's what it's for. But Paul argues against this logic. In fact, his argument here is not so much about food, but about sex, right? And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But Paul's arguing against this logic, against this teleology, this purpose-driven idea that we just use the body for whatever. You see, the argument that the body is about, that the food is for the body is not really about food. It's really about sex. We are sexual creatures. Therefore, we should use our bodies for sex too. And Paul's arguing here saying, it's actually not that simple. In fact, Paul has a much higher view of the body than merely its usage. The body is for what? What does it say there? The Lord. The body is for the Lord. And we'll unpack this in just a moment. But the key point here is that when we appeal to freedom or teleology and use this as an excuse for immorality, we violate the freedom that we have in Christ. We violate the freedom we've been given in Christ. These arguments, they represent an oversimplification of the issues in order to justify sin. If you think about it, if you're going to argue on the basis of teleology, and, and I, I use this because, I don't know, how many of you have heard that word before, teleology? Nobody. Okay. So, so one or two. There are, there are actually people within the church, and we have, I have somebody I've been dealing with lately uh, around this as well, who argues on the basis of teleology for all sorts of interesting things. So here, if you take the argument of teleology, right, 
It's just a matter that, you know, if it's just a matter of sexual organs were made for sex and sex for sexual organs, then we should just go crazy, right? If you're going to follow that logic. But this is exactly the way our secular, unsaved culture today thinks. And I want to just, I know since none of you have heard of it, don't fall into this trap. There are people out there who will tell you that this is what the body's for, and therefore, and it's not going to be necessarily with sex, it might be with something else, but this is what the body's for, therefore, this is what you should do. It's never that simple, okay? The body is for the Lord. There is always a higher calling on the body than just its base usage, okay? So, you were called to freedom. When we commit sexual immorality, we violate the freedom for which we were redeemed, and on this point, if it, it doesn't really even matter if we physically engage in sexual immorality or just indulge in pornography. Either way, it violates the freedom granted to us in Christ. So the first reason that sexual immorality is reprehensible for Christians is that it violates the very freedom for which we were purchased. We were purchased to belong to the Lord, to serve Him, to worship Him with our bodies, right? And we'll come back to that later on. But when we commit sexual immorality, we violate that freedom for which he's purchased us. The second reason that sexual immorality is reprehensible to Christians is that it violates our union. And this is where we get a little bit more theological. So each of the following three points that we're going to see here in the text start with this question. Notice in, the, in your text there, do you not know? Right? This is not the first time Paul's used this series of questions in, in 1 Corinthians, but it's a question that expects a positive answer. In other words, Paul is saying, you know this, right? So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Well, meganoito in the Greek. By no means. In many of Paul's writings, he talks about us, right, as being members of the body of Christ. Uh, we see this metaphor of the body used in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, we see it used of spiritual gifts. Uh, we see it used of helping one another. We see it used in a bunch of different ways. And when we see this metaphor of the body, it conveys several different ideas. Now, bear with me a little bit here. It conveys several ideas. One of those is incorporation, okay, incorporation. That means that the church is part of Christ and each member is part of every other member. We're all incorporated together to be a singularity, a single body, if you like. The second idea this metaphor conveys is the idea of union, the concept of mutual indwelling between the members of the church and Christ himself. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him, right? Uh, and the third one is identification, our belonging to Christ and our sharing in his status. Uh, part of Paul's focus then, in this particular point, here Paul's focus is really on this idea of incorporation, that our bodies are part of Christ. Your body, according to this verse, is literally part of Christ. So while the use of the body is a metaphor here, Paul is arguing that there is a spiritual significance to your body by merit of the fact that it is joined to Christ. Note that the Holy Spirit is not disconnected from Christ, but is called the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8 verse 9. Jesus indicated this even in chapter 14 of, of, of John, right? You remember John 14? 
Uh, that is the spirit of truth who's coming, right? Who the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be what? In you. Yeah. By saying he remains in you, he's indicating that his presence at that time with the disciples was there near them, right? Physically proximity, uh, proximity is in, is in mind there, but yet that and will be in you indicates again that the Holy Spirit is in fact the very presence of Christ on the earth. The main ministry of the Holy Spirit is to mediate Christ to those in union with him. Let me say that again. The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to mediate Christ to those who are in union with him. This is the whole point of John 14 through 16. That is that the Spirit will take what is Christ's and will reveal it to us, and that the Spirit will help us like Christ helped the disciples, that the Holy Spirit will unite us with Christ, who is himself united with the Father. The Holy Spirit mediates Christ to those whom he saves. So then, there is a tight, permanent connection between you, the believer, and Christ through the Spirit of Christ who dwells in you. Now, I might have overemphasized that, uh, but this is an important point. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the substance of our union with Christ. And our union is not a physical union, but a spiritual union, a relational union, if you like. Our union with Christ is the reason that we are members of Christ. We are the extension of Christ on the earth because his Spirit dwells in us. So when Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He's referring to the fact that we bear in ourselves the spirit of Christ, meaning that we are the manifestation of Jesus Christ upon the earth. I don't know about you, but that's kind of thought provoking, right? So Paul asked then in verse 15, shall I take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Now, the word translated prostitute is actually, I think it's kind of an unfortunate translation. It simply means an immoral woman. It's a feminine word talking about a woman who is immoral, okay? It doesn't require that we understand the exchange of money to be taking place here to constitute what Paul is getting at. And it's specifically, like I said, a woman in this place, but the principle applies to men and women or anything. It doesn't really matter. Thus, when we unite ourselves to someone other than our spouse, and here in this context, the context here is really, he's talking about immorality as opposed to marriage, okay? When we unite ourselves with someone other than our spouse, there is, an, there is a sense in which we are literally uniting the presence of Christ on earth with that person. And that's where it gets to be significant. We are in union with Christ, therefore, by physically uniting ourselves with an immoral person, that is to say, by engaging in immorality, we're engaging Christ himself in that immorality. And you can see now how this is a violation of our union with Christ, right? It's pretty clear. We became members of Christ so that we would be transformed from the old ways into image bearers. We became members of Christ so that his character would again be manifest in creation like it was in the Garden of Eden. 
We became members of Christ so that he could continue the work he started on earth, the building of the church. We became members of Christ to bring the rule of Christ to earth and to extend it. And by engaging in sexual immorality, we engage Christ himself in that immorality. In verse 17, Paul makes it clear that we who are joined to Christ are one spirit with him. So we take him with us into that sexual immorality. We've been purchased for freedom, but not a freedom for sexual license, but a freedom to manifest Christ on the earth as we're transformed into his image. But perhaps you're thinking, well, this sounds perhaps a little extreme. Perhaps it's an over-spiritualization of what Paul's saying here. And it's almost like Paul anticipates this argument, which is why he asks the second, do you not know question. So we've seen then that the first reason that sexual immorality is reprehensible to Christians because it violates our freedom. We've seen the second one, that sexual immorality is reprehensible because it violates our union with Christ. The third reason sexual immorality is reprehensible to Christians is that it violates our own body. Now, Notice he starts verse 16 with, or do you not know? What we've just said about joining the body of Christ to an immoral woman is true because it depends on another truth, which Paul is going to explain for us here in verse 16 and following. This is why he uses the word or, because again, he's making a statement in verse 15 that depends on some other fact that he assumes they know, but in case they've forgotten, he asks, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute or immoral woman is one body with her? For he says, the two will become one flesh. Now, again, Paul's not concerned here about prostitution. It's about immorality, right? An immoral woman is the key thing here. Remember that when Paul says, do you not know? He's expecting the answer is, yes, we do know, right? So the previous argument, the sexual immorality is making Christ the member of an immoral woman is predicated on another truth, that sexual immorality is the joining of two bodies into one. So joining our body to an immoral person violates our own bodies. And there are several threads to this that we need to unwind here. So bear with me if you can. First of all, we need to understand the concept of participation, the concept of participation. Remember before I mentioned that there were uh, a number of ideas related to being members of Christ, such as incorporation, uh, union, that idea of mutual indwelling, identification, all of these Identification, uh, incorporation, union, and identification are all different aspects to our union with Christ. But there are other aspects to our union with Christ that we also want to understand. And one important aspect is what's called, at least by theologians, participation. Being in a union infers and creates obligations to act in accordance with that union. This is what we refer to as participation. For example, you make an agreement with somebody to build you a house, right? You enter into a contractual union with them. You have a piece of writing. It says, we're going to work together. I'll pay you and give you some ideas and plans, whatever it is. And you actually do the work, get the materials and so on. That's a union which you're contracting together to enter into. It's temporary. It's not like a marriage union. It's not like the union of the Godhead, but it is a form of a union. 
But then because you're now in that union, there's an expectation that you will both participate together in a way that's in accordance with that, the nature of that union. Namely, you will, the, the builder is going to build the house and you're going to pay him, right? Those are the, the terms of that union, if you like. You're entering into a union. He's doing it so he can get money. You're doing it so you get a house. But the point is that that union you enter into predicates, demands, obligates a certain series of activities, which is what we're calling participation. So participation is simply acting in accordance with the union that I am in. All right? Everybody got that? Cool. Look at verse... Well, don't look at this verse. I'll just read it out to you. Interesting thing is, the Bible teaches that we were called into participation with Christ. Now, look at... Well, I'll, let me read this. First Corinthians 1 verse 9. God is faithful through whom you are called into what? Anyone know this verse? Anyone got it in front of them? Someone read it. Okay, someone read it. Read it out. First Corinthians 1 verse 9. Thank you. That word fellowship is not a very helpful word. This does, I mean, when we think of fellowship today, you think of, oh, we're going to have lunch together and we might chit-chat over lunch, right? That's what we think of when we think of the word fellowship. Uh, for that reason, it's a bad word to use here. It is actually the, the best idea of this word is actually participation. Uh, for instance, in Philippians, Paul talked about the participation of the church of Philippi from the beginning of his time doing ministry. What he meant by that is that the church at Philippi had been thinking about Paul, praying for him, sending him money, and being involved in his ministry. It's the same word, koinonia, fellowship, idiot, participation. In fact, whenever you see this word fellowship in the New Testament, you can generally replace it with the word participation, and you'll find that it enriches that passage uh, significantly. But we were called into participation with Christ. This participation in Christ is actually an implication of us being in Christ. We are in Christ, therefore we participate with Christ. Okay? So, uh, this is the same as not just in our union with Christ, right? Uh, just as participation is part of our union with Christ, so too participation is part of the marriage union. So when I got married to my wife, not only were we incorporated together so that we became members of each other, uh, not only did we begin to identify ourselves with the other, my wife, for instance, taking my surname, uh, not only were we, you know, and sharing in each other's status and so on, uh, actually, we, we also identified together, right? So we shared a status, if you like. My wife became poorer. <laughs> She's better with money, right? I became a little wealthier. It was great. <laughs> But we were also considered to be in a marriage union together and then began to participate together. You see how this works? We started to participate together. And, and when we do this in marriage, it's toward the dominion mandate in Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it and rule over it. Right? Remember that verse? So then sex is actually a form of participation that flows out of the union between spouses. Okay, Now, obviously, this means that taking my body and using it to participate with someone other than my wife is a violation of my marriage union. So it's not only a violation of my union with Christ, it's a violation of my marriage union as well. And here's that second point. It's, it violates our union, just generally speaking. 
Um, not only that, but by using my body in this way, I'm actually defrauding my wife of what belongs to her. So I am in union with Christ, so I should participate with Christ and with my body, but I'm in union with my spouse, so I should participate with my spouse with my body. So participation is an act of union. Okay, that's the key point. Participation is an act of union. Second thing I want you to know with regards to how this becomes a violation of our own bodies is that uh, we need to understand that participation is not just something we do, it actually affects who we are. It contributes to our personhood. There's a sense in which we are what we do. What we do impacts us. It changes us in often very small, subtle ways. Some things change us more significantly than other things. This means that our bodies are actually important for our experience as human beings. This is why the resurrection is so important, right? Who we are is bound up with what happens in our bodies because our body is intricately involved in every decision we make and every act that we engage in. The resurrection is critical because if you go to heaven and your body stays home or stays on earth, did you really go to heaven, right? If you go to heaven and you see George there, but you don't see a body, did George really go to heaven? I mean, at the end of the day, what we do in our body is actually intrinsic to who we are as human beings. Powerful example of this, particularly the idea that uh, things that we do affect us physically, are things that trigger emotional, adrenal, or hormonal responses, right? Uh, Which have a bigger impact than things that don't have those kinds of responses. Uh, For instance, addictions, right? Addictions, certain substances can have a significant impact on our body, such as creating a high of some sort, releasing hormones and triggering certain biological responses. These biological responses then change or at least influence the way we think and feel about smoking, for instance. And often that creates a greater tendency to repeat that activity, right? The smoking or whatever it is, there's worse things, right? We all know can affect your physicality, and that changes who you are. So what we do affects our body, and sometimes these effects can be profound, unexpected, and lasting. Sex is actually one of these things we do that has a significant impact on the body. And Paul, despite being single, he knows this, not by experience, but because he's been taught by rabbis who have thought through this and figured some of these things out. And far from being an activity in which nobody gets hurt, sex actually has a profound effect on us as human beings. Participation, and particularly sexual participation, changes us, and therefore it changes our relationships, forming or deforming our personhood. If you wanted to be a godly human being, the more sin you commit the less godly you're going to be, right? And it's going to actually affect your ability even uh, in many ways to actually grow in godliness. A good example of this, I was talking to a young man recently who's been struggling with pornography, and I had to explain to him that pornography changes the way you think. It doesn't just change the way you're, you're, you, you, know, you, you think about thinking, so to speak. It actually changes your neural pathways in your brain, right? It's actually burned in. And I had to explain to him that this stuff takes a long time to overcome. 
So participation, and particularly sexual participation, it changes us and it changes our relationships and it forms or deforms our personhood. Third, the other third thing I want to explain just as we sort of talk about how this violates our body is that petition, participation doesn't just contribute to our personhood, it also contributes to a union. Look at verse 17 there. We saw in verse 16, the one who joins himself with a prostitute is one body with her. Verse 17 says the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit. Your, verse, your translation might add with him. When we read the words, one who is joined, we're not referring to a state. Okay, It's not talking about one who is in that state of being joined to the Lord or one who is in a state of being joined to a prostitute like it's a momentary thing or a thing that lasts for a set amount of time. It's really better translated uh, to say the one who joins themselves to the Lord or the one who is joining himself to the Lord. And that's the way I'm going to translate this as I work through this here. The one who joins himself to an immoral person or a moral woman is one body with her. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. There's a parallel argument here between these two things. The key to this is the participle here that's translated the one who joins himself. The significance of this participle, and this is just a, a verbal noun essentially, right? That's what a participle is. Um, forgive me. The significance of this participle points toward the inner participation in the physical act of sex. This means that participate, uh, participants in sex engage their thinking, their affections, and their choices in the physical act. This is significant because it tells us that participation is an expression of the inner person that contributes to the union. Nobody who commits immorality, you might have seen this on TV, you know, a man commits sexual immorality, his wife finds out about it, and he's talking about it, trying to justify himself, and he says, it meant nothing. Nobody can say that, because sexual immorality is always a whole-hearted, whole-personed activity. The whole of you is engaged. Physically, you're engaged in this. But your heart is also engaged, which is why we have that middle voice participle here. And not only that, but this contributes to that union. The one who joins himself to an immoral woman is one body with her. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Remember, you are what you do. This means that participation with Christ contributes to your union with him. Okay, this is really simple in that sense. Galatians 5 is really clear on this. The spirit of Christ is in you to lead you. And if you follow him, you're going to become more like him. And you're contributing to your union with Christ. The parallel idea here then is that physical participation in sex contributes to a union with the other person. This doesn't mean it creates that union, but biologically it binds the body, your body, into a union, even if there is actually no union there. In marriage, when you participate sexually with your spouse, you contribute to your union with your spouse. Your body literally binds itself to your spouse through sex. I know about you. Maybe that's encouraging. Should be, right? There should be some encouragement there if you're married. Just as the marriage union is to predicate or, or to, to require, if you like, or to drive the idea of sexual union, so too the sexual union contributes to the marriage union as well. And this is where we start to recognize how sexual immorality violates our body, right? Look at verse 18. 
the NIV puts it like this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Literally, that last line should read, the one engaging in sexual immorality sins against his own body. This really helps us to understand the purpose and nature of participation in this marriage union idea. The image Paul has in the background here is marriage, right? I talked about that before. We saw that from verses 16 and 17. So how do we sin against our own body by engaging sexual immorality? Well, participation is the act, like I said, of union, which changes us and contributes to an existing union, or putting it in biblically sexual terms, Sex is an act of marriage which changes us physically in order to strengthen our marriage union. Sex is an act of marriage which changes us physically in order to strengthen our marriage union. Here's the thing. Sex reinforces the bond between the two who are engaging in it. The physical act neurologically engraves heart change toward our spouse into our bodies. That's literally what's going on. During the physical act of sex, Hormones are released within the, neuro, the nervous system, uh, vasopressin in women and oxytocin in men. The effect of those hormones is to build up feelings or generate feelings in each partner for the other partner. This is a, literally a biological event that takes place during sex in order to influence and to change your emotional makeup or change your heart toward your partner. It's pretty powerful. These feelings are the, are the effect of a neurological bond. Like you can actually trace this. Like neuro, neurological scientists are actually able to uh, look at what's going on in the brain and they can see certain things firing. I don't know who's volunteering to do this, right? But they can, <laughs> but they can, they can actually track the activity in your brain to see what fires and when. And so what they're finding is that these feelings they create neurological bonds within us, within our brain and our neuro and nervous system, a powerful biological bond that is deeply felt and which reinforces the relational union that the couple has already entered into. That's what it should do. Sex reinforces the marriage union by participating together in the most intimate of activities, establishing a shared sense of identity, activating this deepest level of emotion of almost any human act possible. It embeds vivid memories in both the emotional and cognitive centers of the brain. It builds a mutual belonging between the spouses. It creates identification of the one with the other, and it creates a deep neurologically reinforced desire for the other spouse. Sex is a powerful thing. And this reinforcement is intended to establish the marriage bond for life. In fact, regular sex has a compounding effect and is intended to make the marriage union more secure over time. Let me make one note here. Sex does not create a marriage union. Okay, so just, just to be really clear on that. Because some people think once you've had sex, you need to get married because you're already in a union or you've already done it. But it doesn't create the union. In fact, if there's no publicly declared marriage union, the bond created by sex is so strong that it creates expectations and demands that the relationship is too weak to handle. Without marriage, the relationship can be abandoned, but those neurological bonds established by the physical act of sex cannot be undone. It is literally written on your heart. 
maybe not literally on your heart, on your nervous system, but it's the intention of that nervous system change is heart change. If the relationship doesn't hold, the neurological links are still going to influence your thinking and your feelings. But you cannot complete the cognitive, emotional, and volitional intention for which they were established, creating a yearning that cannot be satisfied and is only going to have to abate over time. It takes time. Sex is indeed, uh, sex is intended rather to turn your heart toward your spouse when that cannot happen due to the relationship breaking up. It's similar in effect to a spouse dying. And death itself is an unnatural and a difficult challenge for a spouse. So those who engage in sexually, sexual immorality, they sin against their bodies by creating heart-based consequences for themselves, engraved into their physical selves, that without a marriage union to support it, results in many deaths, is what I'm calling it, perhaps repeatedly throughout a lifetime. They're creating physical drivers for their identity for their emotions and for their thinking that changes their hearts toward a person who is not their spouse. Can you imagine what it would be like emotionally and for your body and for your soul not to lose a spouse once, but for some people, dozens or even hundreds of times? Think about men who go to war, fight alongside comrades just to see them fall in battle and die. You build another relationship. He falls in battle and he dies. That's kind of what sex does. It builds those bonds. And then when they're cut off, that same feeling of loss is there as well. And over time, as you build all of this up and you have repeated experiences like this, it, has, it leaves a scar on the soul. And so sex outside of marriage sins against the body by essentially writing a check that cannot be cashed. Sex outside of marriage generates thoughts, emotions, and behavior that has to be forcefully and unnaturally overridden. When you think about it, if you are, if you are focused on sex with just your spouse, all of the energy that sex unleashes emotionally has got one outlet. And it has this wonderful end point of building a lasting marriage that represents and resembles and reminds you and reminds other people of the unity of the Godhead. But without that, it's going to leave a scar on the soul that is not easily healed. Therefore, sex outside of marriage violates our own bodies because we deceive our bodies into a relational union that does not exist. So we've seen that sexual immorality is reprehensible to Christians because it violates our freedom, it violates our union with Christ and with our spouse, and it violates our own bodies. But the most significant reason sexual immorality is uh, reprehensible is found in verses 19 and 20. That is, sexual immorality is reprehensible to Christians because it violates the temple. Verse 19. Well, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You have been brought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is not the first time in 1 Corinthians that Paul refers to the church as a temple, the temple of God. In chapter 3, he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. 
Now, in chapter 3, when we see this metaphor, we see the church identified with God by merit of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. God's presence in this case is what defines the temple. God's presence defines the temple. This means that we are the embodiment of the presence of God upon the earth because the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, dwells in us. And Paul states in chapter 3, verse 17, that the temple is holy and so are we. So whoever would destroy the temple destroys uh, the temple of God is subject to destruction by God. But here in chapter 6, verse 19, Paul does not say that the church is the temple. He is saying here that your body is the temple. Again, remember how significant we saw the body was before. The body here is not just where you live, but it's also the temple of the Holy Spirit. The focus here is not on the body of Christ as a corporate whole, but on you, on your body, the individual believer. Again, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that constitutes the temple. The temple is where God chooses to dwell. But there are two implications in this case. First of all, we are not our own. This body is not our temple. This is God's temple. God purchased us, including our body, and therefore the body is where we glorify God. Not self, right? We don't glorify self. We don't glorify pleasure. We don't, we're not focused on our own control or escape, and it's not, an, it's not a place that we glorify and worship an immoral person. You are not your own. You are redeemed for a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And when we defile our bodies, we defile the temple of God, the place Christ purchased to dwell and cause us to walk in his ways for his own glory. This is the more obvious of the two implications. And this is in itself is shocking that you and I take what belongs to God, what is consecrated for his presence by him and to dwell forever and we defile it. But the second implication here of this, of our bodies being the temple is it's not only where God dwells, it's also where the worshiper worships. So too, in our case, the body is where we worship God. Thus, when we violate the body, we violate the temple. This explains that, or, you, or do you not know, question, again, that links this verse with the previous one, with the concept of the temple. This is, the body is the place God bought where you are to worship him. Every act, every choice, everything you do involves your body, which God purchased through the death of his own son. And when you use your body, God's dwelling place as a place to burn incense to other gods, you defile the only, listen to this, you defile the only place of worship we are given during this life. Think about it. There's no significance to the temple in Jerusalem because God does not dwell there. There is no significance to the local church, the building, because God does not dwell there. In fact, how many cafes do you see now that are churches, right? There's no significance to the actual body, uh, to the actual church, rather. Therefore, you have one place where you can worship God, and that is your own body. When we commit sexual immorality, we desecrate the only place where we can worship God. It's not just that what we do defiles God's ownership. It's that we replace God in his own temple with something else, with pleasure, escape, control. And, and we use God's temple to worship that idol. Our temple is holy because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, as we saw in 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, but we profane it and we violate it by uniting that temple with the body of an immoral person. Therefore, when we commit immorality, we violate God's temple, the place where we are to glorify and worship him. So we've seen then that sexual immorality is reprehensible to Christians because it violates our freedom with Christ or in Christ. It violates our union with Christ and our marriage union. It violates our very own body and it violates the temple of God on earth. Now we've focused today on sexual immorality in terms of sexual intercourse and I've largely focused on heterosexual immorality, but it applies to any form of sexuality, right? Uh, sexual immorality, rather. Uh, it applies to pornography as well. In fact, pornography is perhaps even more pernicious or evil in some ways because it causes the person who engages in it to dehumanize the people behind the images or the videos that are being watched and later replayed. Pornography has the same impact on the body as sexual immorality, but with the added destructive twist of reducing the individual's ability to relate to other people, particularly to people of the opposite sex. Because it takes those people from being human beings to being objects for my own pleasure or whatever. As we close then, I want to offer some encouragement, as I mentioned at the beginning. First of all, let these four reasons drive purity in you. Flee from every form of sexual immorality. Fight against it with every fiber of your body. Guard your mind by memorizing scripture, selecting key verses that remind you of the evil of sexual immorality and the satisfaction that comes from participating with, in, with Christ in union with him. And when your mind drifts, and, and I'm pretty confident that we're all human. I'm pretty confident that everybody here struggles with lust and sexual immorality in some sense. When your mind drifts to it, review and then meditate on these verses that you've memorized. Pray for deliverance and get yourself to work doing something that will occupy your mind. Second, seek sexual satisfaction in your spouse. Recall together that sex reinforces your thoughts, your affections, and your commitment to one another. Revel in the gift of sex that God has given and let it enrich your marriage. That's what it's given to us for. And if you're struggling with sex, like I mentioned right at the beginning, get help with the underlying issues that exist. Uh, whether it's relational, uh, caused by external pressure, like a, a really busy job or business, uh, or your own sin. Confess your sin to one another and forgive one another so that you can come together again and strengthen your marriage and rejoice together in the gift of each other that our gracious God gives. Third, I want you to know that marriage is a type of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. As one who is in union with Christ, you've been called to participate with Christ. And as you live out the instructions of the new covenant, know that you are also reinforcing your love for Christ. So even if you're single here today, you can still take these principles of union and participation and realize that your participation in your union contributes to that union and strengthens it. This is how sanctification happens. You might not feel like you're the kind of Christian you want to be right now. But by continually walking with the Spirit, participating with the Spirit of Christ in you, you will grow more cemented in your union with Christ. 
The greater your obedience and submission to the Holy Spirit, the greater your joy in Christ will be. And finally, the permanence of the marriage bond also tells us how permanent and unbreaking God's love for us and mercy toward us in Christ is. Even if you've committed immorality, God is not a God who seeks divorce. He is faithful even when we are not. When we sin against him and we confess our sins and we repent and we turn to Christ in faith, he restores our relationship with him so that we can again participate with him and have joy. And the end result is that one day all our immorality, sexual or not, will be wiped away because Christ, our bridegroom, has suffered and died on our behalf, on behalf of his bride, and what belongs to Christ belongs to his bride, the church, just as our sin belongs to him and he's been punished and satisfied that punishment. My hope today is that this encourages you toward purity, the guarding of your minds and hearts, the enrichment of your marriages, and a greater appreciation of the person and work of Christ. Father, we just want to thank you for the gift of sex within marriage, for how you use it to build us and create in us a a heart that is turned toward our spouse. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our marriages through this knowledge. Help us to devote ourselves to loving our spouses so that we can reflect the glory of the triune God even in the marriages that you have given to us. And we pray for those, Lord, who are struggling with sexual sin. Lord, grant to them clarity around these things. Convict them of their love for Christ and their need to purify themselves and give to them verses that will just help them to clarify their own heart. And Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have revealed these things to us and that we can have joy together as followers of Christ and the work that you are doing in us, not just through your spirit, but also through marriage as well. And we ask your blessing on our time and all God's people said, amen. Thank you.